Welcome to the Thriving Artist Podcast, a feature of the Clark Hewlings Fund for Visual Artists. The Clark Hewlings Fund exists to provide training, introductions, and funding for working artists to turn working artists into thriving artists. I'm Daniel Degree, your host. Despite having 200% more education, working artists earn $6,000 less than workers with similar education. More than 35% are self-employed, yet less than one-third have achieved full sustainability, meaning they fully support themselves with their art. The difference between just making art and creating a sustainable art career that strengthens an economy for a lifetime is proper business training and tools. You can have an exponential impact with just a small donation, so give small at clarkhealingsfund.org impact. Your investment does not buy an artist a fish, it buys the fishing rod. That's clarkhealingsfund.org impact. We'd certainly appreciate your small gift. Now, our guest today is Maura Kehoe Collins. Maura is an art collection manager and the founding director of Artifile, an independent art advisory providing museum standard services for care and maintenance of private collections. Maura assists artists, private collectors, foundations, estates, and corporations in inventory, assessment, and administration to address the physical and practical needs of a private collection. Maura, welcome to the show. Can you take a minute to tell us a little bit more in your own words about yourself and what you do for a living? Yes, thank you, Daniel. Thank you for having me. Um, to tell you what I do, well, collections management, I guess essentially, but I will often tell people as you think of it, like a museum has many departments that are caring for their collections, the conservators, registrars, curators, even the maintenance staff, you know, there's a whole, a whole lot of folks working in an art museum. I try to bring all of those functions into my advisory and provide those services to my clients. And I like to say also that I provide a museum standardist service because I did start my career in museums and that had a really big impact on me. I moved on to the private sector later and that is when I saw that for the most part, at that time anyway, and this was in the 90s, early 90s, that most private art collectors really didn't have what I thought was the information to um, properly steward a collection and I'm really big on stewardship. So I don't know if that answers your question, but think of it as everything of like preventative care, the, the simple way of saying it. Well, now you create physical and digital files of these works and documentation. So tell me why those particular methods are so important. Well, yes, I do create those things, but I would say they kind of come out of a, a process. Like I, when I start work with a collection with my client, Typically, they come to me because they don't have an inventory or they feel their inventory is insufficient. Maybe it's old. They feel they've lost inventory control or whatever. So we start with an inventory. And to do that, I usually collect all the documentation they can provide me with first and try to sort of create a structure of a collections management system, you know, some kind of spreadsheet or a database, depending on their needs. And then we really methodically go through and make a full and accurate physical inventory of everything. And that was that basically allows me to compare the physical data to the documentary evidence. You know what I mean? We sort of find where everything's in sync and where, where there are discrepancies and take it from there. And then we're able to identify which objects go with which documents, you know, 100%, scan those and keep paper files, object files, as well as digital files of the scans. We take print quality photographs by a professional photographer and sometimes just more detail-oriented condition photographs taken by me. Um, but all of these things, I mean, documentation is, is a very important part of the object and the care of collections. 
Well, so let's zoom out just a little bit more. And, uh, you know, you're talking about inventory and documentation. Is that the sum and substance of art collections management, or is there more to it? And what is art collections management exactly? <laughs> I know it's, 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 a very, it's a very big topic, but um, I guess I start with inventory because that's really where I start my work. I, I can't help anybody or do anything until I have a very clear and accurate, you know, kind of accounting of what is there and where is it and what is its condition and try to get a handle on, on that inventory. So I consider that sort of the keystone, you know, function. Like I just have to have that before I can do anything else. But what I do with that, it might depend on what I find and, and the circumstances, the conditions of each collection or what the clients, what the goals are. But what I like to do is once I've, once I've had this inventory and I know what there is and I know where it is, when I've identified its documentation or I go seeking it and try to reconstruct it, um, maybe based on labels I find on the object or other research, you know, we try to reconstruct documentation as well, interview with the artist, with the, um, or the artist or the, the collector to get some more information about how and when they acquired it. But ideally then we take all this and we begin the, the physical care of the collection. I'll be able to run reports and know what do I see as having quite urgent condition needs, whether it's the work of art itself or maybe there are problems with the framing. Maybe if it's a sculpture, there's problems with placement or general environmental issues uh, that we might want to correct regarding light or heat or cooling. You know, this is once we know what we have and, and what's going on, we can make a lot of recommendations and look at valuation, make sure it's been insured properly. And um, I know, does that answer your question? Does that help you see like how the, the inventory really is fundamental to where we go from there? It does. Uh, but I also want Mara to zoom out maybe even a little bit further now and, and tell me, why did you start Artifile? I, I get the drive to sort of go into the private sector. You know, that's the, probably the biggest trend in work since the Industrial Revolution. But I'm curious, you know, what do you see out there that is driving Artifile's mission? And what is that mission, really, from a, an aspirational perspective? Well, for me, um, it wasn't like I was so drawn to the private sector. Actually, I, I had only ever worked in museums and was um, thought I'd spend my life in the museums. But it became more probably just sort of a personality sort of thing. I realized that while I was really interested in conservation and, and repairing works of art, once I got to doing it, I, I guess I became more interested in how can we prevent a lot of the damage that we're treating. Some of it seemed to me it, it, we, we could have prevented that. So I became very interested in that track. And I was also, I, I began my, my career in Far Eastern art conservation. There really weren't that many jobs in this world at that time for me. And I found fellowships and then worked in different museums. But ultimately, I thought, I'm going to you know, give it a try in the private sector, see what else is out there. And I went to work for a wonderful woman who did mostly public art projects, but she also funded her work doing public art sculpture commissions by also selling works of art to private collectors. And I really enjoyed both of these worlds immensely. But what I found was that I was really able to bring something um, that seemed like nobody else was doing at that time, which was really trying to advise these collecting clients that we had in um, in everything after acquisition. You know, um, of course, there's pre, pre-purchase due diligence, but I mean, especially how they could 
store and install and frame and mount and then also just the documentation and making sure they kept track of that. And I began doing databases, you know, well before we have a lot of wonderful products on, on the market now that I don't have to design my own databases anymore. But I kind of began, it was actually called Artifile Art Collections Management Services and Systems. That's how it was in the early days. But um, there was just for me, I really saw a need for the private collector to maybe care for their works of art more to a museum standard and to recognize their role as stewards, as as temporary custodians of these works of art that should go on and, and outlive them. So that was my, that's really where I came from. Now, tell me about damage, because damage seems to be uh, a recurring theme in what I'm hearing. And we could be talking about light, temperature, um, damage to framing, insulation damage, some exposure damage of other kinds. Is some of the damage you find simply irreversible? And if so, how do you triage that? Sometimes it is irreversible, and that's always a heartbreak. But, you know, there's one more kind of damage that you didn't mention. Sure, there's all those things, and I see them all the time. There's also benign neglect, where people just don't know and don't see. That's what I'm always so surprised by. When I am hired by a collector, and it's usually a pretty special collector that wants to hire and pay someone to do this kind of work, to do the inventory, do a condition survey, rather than just calling in a conservator to fix a broken thing that they are aware of. You know what I mean? This is a much more preventative kind of um, approach. So it takes someone who really understands their collection, deserves that. But when I go in and start this work, I'm just always stunned that people don't see what I'm seeing, you know, whether it's a slipped hinge, a very simple thing, but, you know, you'd think that they could see that in the frame um, or just really discoloration because very often, the, you know, if somebody's been collecting a long time and they had their framing done in the 70s, they weren't using the acid-free, 100% cotton rags sort of materials. They very often have cardboard backings on them, and this alone has caused so much, so much damage. Sometimes irreversible. Sometimes you can sort of deacidify some works of art depending on the media and if it's safe to do. Sometimes we can treat that. You know, painting, paintings that just have so much, you know, cracking of the paint layer going on. Things that, you know, sometimes some of that is normal and and expected in old paintings, but sometimes it's really actively causing paint to come off. And that is not what you want. You want to be able to get that stabilized before you have loss. So, you know, we see all kinds of, just, I see all kinds of damage all the time. Sometimes it's because of placement of a sculpture and maybe the housekeeper keeps smashing it with the uh, vacuum. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of things we see and we can treat or certainly help them to prevent further issues. Let's address that concept of benign neglect and, and maybe try to get at the root of it, because I think um, you're saying that's pretty common, and, and to me, that's the others are really obvious. You know, keep keep your painting out of the sun, but um, you know, don't put it on. I see yeah, so many yeah. paintings on the roof of my building in Brooklyn, and I'm like, why are you putting that there? That's so <laughs> that's such a mistake. But I mean, they put paintings on their roof. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's the mm. artists themselves. But I'm thinking, you know, if you're going to respect oh, your art, you know, I mean, it's under, I understand if it's an installation or, or the point is in the display. But if you're storing it up there, which is what I'm seeing. Uh, you know, to get yeah. it out of your apartment, you know, with the rain and the cigarettes and oh the neglect. Goodness. Yeah, and the sun. Yeah. But, but let's talk about regular, no, I've, something I've, beyond that. Yeah. So in the area well, of benign right. neglect. And there's, there's artists, 
that there's collectors who sometimes are also doing things differently for different reasons, you know, lack of resources or whatever. So I've seen I've seen it just because someone more than able to, you know, afford better storage. But sometimes there's little things one can do, and there's so many organizations now out there to help artists trying to mitigate some of those problems. Exactly. So, so my question is, do you think that collectors um, have a moral obligation to uh, care for and protect the works that they are, in fact, collecting? Wow. Um, that's a big word and a big statement, but I suppose that, you know, yes, I would agree with that statement. And that's pretty much what I've you know, said about making my professional life about, is helping collectors to recognize that because it's it's just not the fun way to spend money, you know. It's just human nature, I guess, certainly a collector's nature is going to want to buy and, and collect more and acquire and, you know, build a collection, and that's the fun, that's the fun part. It's not always so much fun to find out that, oh, man, this painting needs $20,000 worth of, you know, conservation work immediately just to, you know, stop this kind of a progressive problem or just to make it safe for travel because you want to lend it or something. Like, that's just... Even people who have the resources might be don't you know it's 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 a bitter pill sometimes. But the more you get, uh, the more you get into it, and the more you get to really being very proud of your role as a steward and a good custodian. Hopefully, hopefully you take those uh, you take those bills a little better. But yeah, yeah, I, I really like to. Say, and usually, I have to say that once it's always a bit of a blow. Maybe the first meeting after the initial inventory and condition survey. When I do make a maintenance plan, I do prioritize needs. Like these are, I think, are the most urgent needs. These might be our second-tier needs. Sometimes I'm really not sure. I mean, I'm not a conservator. So I see my role as something between um, the curatorial and the conservation. I, I'm kind of this, you know, first, you know, first wave to kind of look at this and say, hmm, I'm really not sure about this piece, so I'd like to call in a professional. And maybe I'll, and I've done that with very large collections, especially if I see a lot of damage and that happens where I'll come to work for somebody and they haven't had anybody looking at the collection in that way, like ever. So there might be a lot of issues and then it's even more difficult to prioritize. And I'll bring in another professional or two, an objects person, a paper person, a paintings person, and we'll say, let's work together to triage these needs and put together a maintenance plan and see which things go out first, what we watch what we do next, all of that. And sometimes, too, it's as simple as reframing. Can you elaborate on that? When you say it's as simple as, as reframing, you mean because the frame is causing well, uh, um, irrevocable damage? Or? Yes. Yeah, the frame, the frame can be a big, a big problem. Like I said before about a lot of the framing materials of earlier days um, were not acid-free. And so this causes an acidic sort of environment, and then you have this acid migration that can go from these backboards, the matting, and all this stuff, you know, through to the work of art, the paper itself. And you see discoloration or um, spots and things start to happen, especially in combination with heat, humidity, light, all these, you know, just a, everything's happening. Um, you know, it's organic, and it's there are things working on it over time. Um, so sometimes, and I've worked with framers who are very generous in saying, well, I'd like to, I'd, I'll bring them a, a whole bunch of work and say, we want to preserve the frame. Let's keep the frame to try to keep costs down. We'll keep the frame, but we're going to refit everything inside. We're going to take everything out, get rid of the bad stuff, rehinge, 
And we can also make a better assessment of the work of art when it's out of the frame and say, hmm, maybe this does need treatment, or it can go back in with better quality materials for, for its you know, longevity. I used to say that if I could do one thing, I would, I would see that there's a, the collectors understood or the dealers and people who are selling works of art would put on the frame, you know, <laughs> this frame is, you know, this temporary or we don't know the materials of this frame. Please check with your conservation framer that it is sufficient because a lot of people say, but I, I bought this from a very reputable dealer and that, that all might be true, but they may have received it that way. It was consigned and it was sold. It doesn't mean it's an endorsement of the framing materials. You know, it's still a great work of art, I'm sure, with all those, you know, everything you bought. But the frame <laughs> might not be what you think it is, you know, the frame materials. So that's something I like to look at with my clients if they're making new acquisitions, just take care of that right away and not let it stay in that kind of an environment. Let's focus a little bit on the artist side, though. Uh, so in your experience... Mm-hmm. Do artists uh, care typically about what happens to their work once it leaves the studio and it's been paid for? And if they care, how can they do more than care? How can they ensure their works are protected even after they leave the studio? Well, I I can't answer the question if they care. I'm sure they care. I can't imagine they don't care. Um, But, you know, that aside, um, you know, another thing that's just really important is for artists to clearly document what works of art are made from, and only they can do that. Like, not to assume that everyone's going to know what that is, or that your dealer's going to know, the person selling it, to be really, really careful and very, um, you know, detailed about what paper, what materials were used to make this work of art, because that information stays with the object. You know, it goes on the, the bill of sale, it gets into the hand of the collector, um, and then it can get into the hand of the conservator if it should come to that at some point in time. We all know some of the new materials, you know, aren't as stable as older, you know, just an oil on canvas. There's been some issues with new materials. So the more the conservator can know, the better the outcome. And also for people to know how to, how to, how to display it and how to treat it in its lifetime. So that's very, very important. Things artists can do even in their studio Surely how they store paint, if it's paintings, you know, in racks, you just want to be careful. If you can wrap them all the better and not have them just being jammed against each other all the time. The, the, where I've seen a lot of the most trouble, though, I guess, is in works on paper that may have been put into cardboard portfolios, you know, for storage. And those are, you know, corrugated cardboard, for those parts, very acidic material that's going to cause, again, more of this acid migration I've seen you know, real damage that way with artists. I know I was working on an exhibition with an artist and a curator, and it was going to be a retrospective. And he's, you know, this came to him a little bit later in life, and we went searching for some of the early works to include in the exhibition. And it was just so sad to be opening up some of these print file drawers that that weren't the metal ones because he couldn't afford to buy that back in the day. And he had some chipboard drawers that were, you know, he put together and and made for storing his works on paper, and there was a lot of damage to the works that were in those drawers. The chipboard itself was highly acidic, (laughs) and just within coming into contact with the paper caused all kinds of discoloration, sometimes super sharp lines, even where things had been overlapped. It was just incredible, and some of that is just irreversible, so those were just lost. But 
you know, just if you can just be aware that acid is such a problem and to use when you can and sometimes scavenge where you can <laughs> um, some better quality acid-free, you know, boards and tape those together to use for portfolios, for storage, and kind of like use anything you can to buffer. So if you don't have one of those great metal print files, okay, but you have some kind of buffer thing between the paper and the, you know, acidic part of the, the storage system. So, yeah, there's a lot of people can do. I don't want to talk on and on. Again, I'm not a conservator, but um, there's lots of ways to get information about that, those kinds of storage you know, what's better materials, you know, even the American Conservation, not you know, but AIC, the American Institute for Conservation has a great site, and the Getty has lots of great sites as well for, for information. Well, those are good resources. Um, I'm wondering if controlling your inventory is part of it. Uh, do you think that artists need to manage their, their actual inventory better, control where it goes and how they track who has it? I've heard of some situations where artists actually lose control of their inventory. Have you ever seen something like that? Oh, yes, yeah, sure. It happens. I mean, you know, it's it's like it's like every population there. There are the types who are just exceptionally good at this sort of detailed inventory management and some that just are not. And also just the demands of being an artist, as you know, the time you know to make the work, especially in today's marketplace with so much um, so the art fairs and, you know, a lot of artists have to employ a lot of staff and a lot of assistants to kind of keep track. But sometimes they're also hiring other artists that may have no professional skill whatsoever and maybe no aptitude for this kind of thing. So I've worked for artists that have had a lot of very well-meaning people come through and try to help them keep their inventory tracked, but it's also creating, you know, all kinds of chaos in the system because, you know, works of art of the same edition have all different titles or they didn't keep track of the edition cast properly or, you know, there's just all kinds of conflicting information which takes a very long time to tease out. So, you know, some artists are exceptionally good. at it. It's just part of who they are and they're really good at it. I've seen it and it's wonderful. Some artists just, you know, aren't. That's not their thing. But I really recommend it can be just such a simple thing, even in a log book. You don't have to worry about getting into fancy systems. Start a book and keep very clear track of the date, the title, materials, any other information you want to put with that, who you sold it to, who you consigned it to. I have seen some very difficult stories for artists who also didn't keep you know, good track of their contracts and their consignments. And where are their works of art? And the consignment period is long over. Where's your work of art? Was it sold? Or does the, does the gallery still have it? Is the gallery still functioning? <laughs> they closed up shop. You know, I've seen a lot of things um, that don't go well if you don't keep on top of this sort of thing. An artist who had the work shipped back to the gallery when it really belonged coming back to her after exhibition in a museum. And then it was just really hard to get back. They think it's back on consignment. And if you haven't defined terms, what kind of money you're asking for it and when will you be paid? There's, there's so many so many little elements of every you know, contract. It's very important to keep, to keep all this straight. So it's not just the tracking who's buying your work, uh, not just tracking the sale, but 
it sounds like there are things to consider um, with consignment agreements potentially going bad, maybe with the UCC, the Uniform Commercial Code. Yes, yes, that is for sure. Um, and, you know, I haven't worked with artists, to be honest, on that side. I don't know how the law is protecting with them, but they should certainly look into it. But certainly for collectors, I know that if you're consigning to a commercial gallery, and certainly an artist is consigning to a commercial gallery as well, but I just don't know how that relationship works. That's to look into. But um, unless you have one of these basic UCC forms in place, you know, if that gallery should go bankrupt or anything should happen, um, you don't want the creditors of the gallery, you know, you're, the, all, the, all the inventory in that gallery is going to be held up and it could be available to creditors, but you don't even want to get into the situation of having to try to fight to get it back. You just want to know that you have that protection in place. So artists and collectors alike should really be looking into the UCC, Universal Commercial Code, forms to protect their consignments. I'm not an expert in that area, but that's the whole thing about a collections manager is that we know a lot about a lot of the various liabilities, and we will turn to other professionals to help us make sure everything's in order. You know, where I can't necessarily do everything, I'm not, I'm not able to do that, but I'm able to look at the situation broadly and try to make sure that we're protecting, you know, all the different kinds of exposures. So I would definitely urge your, your artist to look into that. It's funny you should say, uh, because, uh, you know, we have had uh, a workshop within uh, our business accelerator program on precisely this issue and, um, and have talked about uh, the UCC. It's one of what we call special sessions for business accelerator fellows. So, um, you know, right now that is only available to fellows within the business accelerator program, which is our uh, postgraduate education program for uh, that doesn't require you to be a postgraduate or, or a graduate, but for uh, for <laughs> those who are so important. for those who are fellows who are listening, uh, feel free to dig into our video library. And for those that are not, new things are coming. Uh, so stay tuned down the road as we begin to offer uh, educational instances to the public on exactly such topics. Um, so that that's a great PSA you've given us for that. I want to ask you. Um, <laughs> I'm glad. I want to ask you for one more potential story. So you've told us a couple of things about um, losing control of the inventory and about consignment agreements. And I, you know, I want to, I wonder if you could answer skeptics out there. So skeptics might hear us talking about environmental issues and, you know, how they affect art and thinking, eh, does that really happen? Have you really seen a real instance where other than just abject lack of common sense, uh, that became... Uh, an issue. Can you tell us, uh, have we got it wrong? Is it really the, you know? Oh, no, <laughs> it's very real. Um, you know, I can't name works of art and all that specifically, of course. You know, a huge part of what I do is my discretion is, is so important. But yeah, absolutely. Works of art exposed to light. And also, you know, there's the issue of um, temperature and humidity control. I mean, I know we're not all, you know, able to put up museum quality environmental systems. I know people can't do that for the most part, but just to recognize that it is those, what they call the big fluctuations, a change in temperature and humidity that can cause a lot of um, expansion and contraction. I worked with a collection that had lacquer material that was completely destroyed because lacquer has wood um, at the core and then the lacquer layers going around it. 
and they were just completely lost because of poor storage conditions. We have dealt with certainly plenty of works of art on paper, and certain pigments are more fugitive than other pigments, so you know it's important if artists can know more about the materials, that's very important. Using UV Plexi is you know, another good, put it, you, know, you try to put as many layers as you can of protection. That's certainly the first, the first line of defense there with UV Plexi. It costs a bit more, but not that much more anymore. Um, but with my clients, I'll certainly make sure we have the best UV protection on the glazing, but also the windows. You can, uh, for collectors who have the resources, I, I recommend that we put film, a UV films, over the windows. Now we're blocking out another layer. I mean, where there's visible light, there, there can be damage, but still, we have to have light, but we can put another layer over the window films. And then, you know, you see in galleries are some of those shades, those UV filtering shades. They look very nice, and they block out a lot a lot of light and, and ultraviolet, so that's helpful as well. So just put up as many layers as you possibly can and that you can afford to do knowing that it's really, really important. This is not, you know, not uh, panic, panic material. <laughs> this is very real. So, and if you, if you really look at your works of art and you don't have these protections, you might start to notice over time papers darkening, colors fading. Um, look at your furniture fabric, another, another thing you could look at for a gauge. It's, it's very real. So do everything you can to prevent it. Learn everything you can about your materials and do everything you can to prevent the damage because a lot of that is irreversible. I always worry, you know, I have paintings all over my office and studio, um, canvas paintings. They're all oil, not acrylic. And I've shied away from putting any kind of protective material in front of them for the simple reason that I've understood that oil needs to breathe and, you know, that's more appropriate for acrylic and so on. So, and then also there's the enjoyment, you know, the, yeah. the glare that I know you right. can get non-glare glass, but uh, do you have any recommendations uh, from, am I thinking about this right or, or, or not? No, no, you're right. I mean, typically it's the works on paper that get um, a frame with some kind of glazing over it. Um, the oil on canvas and the acrylics are usually a bit more stable, but still you should, you know, like I said, the different colors are more fugitive and I don't know all the materials, so I'm only speaking very generally and this is where, you know, artists can speak with conservators or, you know, go and learn as much as you can about your materials so you know where your vulnerabilities are. It's very hard for me to speak um, specifically about anything. But yeah, typically the oil paintings, and the works on canvas and panels and whatnot are not frame with that kind of glazing. Well, that makes sense. Uh, so I'm going to turn now to our audience before we go into the third segment of our show. If you're finding value in what you're hearing, a gift of $15 per month lets you sponsor this show's ongoing broadcast. Now, a portion of our funding also goes to deliver direct education to artists who have demonstrated a clear achievable plan for transforming their businesses into self-sustaining and thriving ones that fill the world with art. Share this commitment with us now at clarkhealingsfund.org impact. We'd certainly appreciate it. Now, Maura, before Artifile, you had a strong background in Far East artwork preservation and in leading museums into the digital era. So does, does that carry over into what you're doing now and, and why this, this particular set of interests? Well, yeah, I, I, think, I think that essentially, you know, I've, I've just always had these kinds of interests. I mean, I think I 
when I was still a college student, I was an art history student, but I learned pretty early that I didn't want to be a curator and I wasn't going to be an academic. And my interests were just very practical. I actually was, um, I, I, uh, I was a sophomore in college when it was, I don't want to age myself here, but it was in the eighties. And we, um, a friend and I, she was taking, you know, computer science classes. It was also early. We decided we had to computerize our museum's catalog, our college museum's catalog. So I always had sort of practical application interests, I suppose. And so we launched that project, and mm-hmm. that was the beginning of, you know, computerization of cataloging for me and, and certainly for my, the museum I worked at. And then in, later on at the British Museum, I was also interested in networking conservation records. So I guess, I guess it's always just been there as sort of part of my interest because, you know, certainly sharing information is so important. Access to information is so important. And that's why the inventory is homely as it sounds when you can have your inventory and you can pull up information about your works of art, whether they, you made them or you own them, being able to bring up that information is just so valuable. And of course, you only get what you put in. So I've been attuned very early to, you know, you need to be very careful how you put in your, your information. It sounds like such an easy thing to do in inventory, but it's actually not all that easy to get it right and to be thorough and to get everything you need on that first pass and have to go back again, you know, it's it's a job. There's professionalism involved, but it's just it's it's just a wonderful thing to be able to say, oh, you know, which work of art is that? What was the year that was made? And oh, how did you acquire that one? And be able to pull all this information up in just a you know a, a couple of keystrokes. Look at the original document because you scanned it. It's just all there. What you paid for it back in whatever year. It was appraised over the last 15 years at these various times, and you can watch its history of the appraisal history. It's, it's really wonderful to be able to have and, and access information like that. It's very empowering, and that's what you really hope if you're going to invest in this kind of you know, project, uh, inventory and a system, you get a really big return on your investment because you really will have the ability to look at all this data, everything you have, and believe me, people do not know what they have. Probably not the artist, the president was in their studio, um, and the private collector, for the most part, I find, because they would like an est- they usually want an estimate from me at the start of work, and I can only base that on what they tell me they have. But I've almost always found that they have about three times what they think they have. That's kind of the magic number. So... An inventory turns up a lot, <laughs> not the least of which is that, you know, how much you have. But we learn a lot. I mean, you know, I'm always surprised, too, how much of the documentation is incorrect when I start matching documents to objects. Don't assume that the bill of sale you received is accurate. Really look at it. Really look at it very carefully. I also like to ask my collectors if they can to, after you get your bill of sale and you've paid for the object, have them send you a statement, you know, payment received in full, because that is when title passes, is when payment's been made and received. So all of these documents are very, very, um, very integral to you know, to the object and to your uh, to your collection, and it's risk management <laughs> of all the, of all the many things. But it sounds like that um, it's not Far Eastern art in particular. Um, that captured your interest, but it's just sort of the entry point that you got into. 
That's probably right. That's probably right. I, I was interested in it, certainly interested. And I had been a student in China not long after China opened. So once I was there too, I saw, well, I don't think we need more curators. We need some more people taking care of these works of art because there had been, you know, after years of revolution and whatnot, lots of damage in the museums needed more support, it seemed, and the objects needed help. So I just became interested there, you know, in the care of the... I think this has always been, I guess, part of me, prevention, care. Um, And I've carried it over, you know, now... I've been doing this a long time, and I really love it. And I, I'll do, like, I, I can't imagine doing anything else, <laughs> you know. And it's only becoming more and more important. People don't necessarily realize it, and it's always going to be a hard sell because for the reasons I said before, people don't necessarily like to spend money on this kind of, you know, rudimentary stuff, you know, inventories and systems and whatnot. My husband jokes and says that I'm like the dental hygienist of the art world, that Nobody wants to do it, but once they've done it, they're really happy. They have, you know, this peace of mind, knowing that everything's in order. They know what they have, where it is, what it's worth. It's properly insured. We have all the documents. And it can really allow people to start focusing on, you know, the shaping of the collection. Maybe they're looking at it now and saying, well, you know, I'm I'm looking to now sell these works that I collected earlier or I want to upgrade and that for that artist. And they might sort of create a lot of activity and really shaping the collection and then also hopefully ultimately thinking about succession planning because we can't take it with us. And it's very important to have this information at your hand, you know, at the hand so you can look and see what do I have, where might I start planning to gift sell, you know, donate to institutions, family, friends, all that. So it just, it just gives, it's very empowering. And hopefully, of course, we hope that people are just very, very proud of their role as good stewards <laughs> of the works of art. Now, what if someone feels they can't afford a personal collection manager? Uh, it, do you suggest that they turn to some kind of software or system uh, to manage their, at least track their collection uh, or their inventory, or or do you have other recommendations? Absolutely. Um, well, there's always, like I said before, even just if you had a notebook and you had this, if you can't even get a digital, you're not comfortable in that, certainly just start with a list. Spreadsheet, the Excel spreadsheet is a very, very flexible you know, system that you can then import or export into anything else if you decide to use one of the cloud systems or something down the road. I noticed on your website that the Clark Hewlings Fund has a product, the Artist's Archive, which or Artwork Archive, that looks really interesting, and it might also be appropriate for collectors. Certainly it's for artists, um, and that looked really... I only had a quick look at that earlier. I thought it looked really good and didn't know about it, so I was happy to learn about it. It looks quite affordable from what I can see. Well, that's probably just it. Even there is a good start, you know, just making sure you're methodical and consistent in your keeping of your information. Sometimes what I'll do for different clients after after I finish the work is I'll also give them kind of my manual of how I input the data, everything from capitalizations and lowercase or how I might fill in the signature fields, what do I start with, what it is, where it is, what it's written. And, you know, just, just giving sort of basic standards 
to the data entry because what you put in is what you will get out. So, of course, you want to look nice and to be consistent. So I usually um, accompany the finished work with that kind of a manual and sometimes also like a workflow. Like every time you get a new work of art, you know, what you should do pre-purchase, due diligence, as well as upon acquisition, the various things to do in a workflow to, you know, maintain the system I started for you because not everybody also wants to hire me in perpetuity. Some people do, but some people just want me to come in, do what I do, and leave it to them to maintain. So I try to help them out, make sure they they understand or the person they're going to delegate to do that is what they're doing so that it stays consistent and stays, you know, updated, maintained. Does that answer the question? (laughs) Yes. Now, some would say that the current art market itself is undergoing a a kind of renaissance, uh, meaning that uh, there's a dramatic increase in direct sales to consumers from artists. It's one of the fastest growing uh, types of of, uh, selling channels. And then also specifically direct sales through uh, online. Uh, In fact, Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. finally, sort of online art sales are eclipsing uh, auction sales in terms of the percentage of interested buyers. And as this occurs, um, does this affect what you do with collection management? Is this something that, uh, are are you doing something to address this change or does it not change much in and around your field? That's an interesting question. I'm not really sure because, as you say, this is kind of a newer trend and one that I think is wonderful. And actually, I know somebody who is working with one of these online selling platforms. It's called Art Finder, and it's started in England, but they're bringing to the U.S. market. And just when he talks to me about, you know, just the statistics of how much the artist is able to sell, and it's you know, it's 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 taking away the gallery. Um, middleman, so they're selling direct. It's just a platform to be able to put the artist in contact with the collector or the consumer. Someone wants to sell the collector, but um, such interesting data coming out of that too of who sells and how much and how much they put up and male, female. Just really interesting. It's a very interesting website. So, but how it affects my work. I'm not really sure. In an interesting way, if it's if it is an online platform and there's a form to fill out, artists might be more forced to filling in all that information and get used to providing that information. But I don't know. I don't even know if that's really true. But it's I, I don't really know if I have an answer for that question of how it's going to affect my work since I'm usually everything after acquisition. And hopefully it just comes with good documentation. I would just say that. And maybe even it comes with more documentation than some galleries would be providing. I don't know if it comes with maybe some artist statement or information about the work, that work in particular. Maybe it allows you to have a direct contact with the artist. And I think that has been one of the side effects, too, that some of the um, people buying through ArtFinder create a little bit of a um, you know dialogue with the artist. And that's always really nice. Most collectors really enjoy their relationship with the artist. It can be a big part of collecting for a lot of collectors. So I'm not really sure if I know how to answer that one, Daniel. I think a lot of uh, this remains to be seen. I think it's it's really a, a new phenomenon for a lot of people. And this has been a really interesting exploration. You've been listening to the Thriving Artist Podcast, a feature of the Clark Hewlings Fund for Visual Artists. 
For more information on Artifile and Mara Keo Collins, visit artifile.com. We're going to spell that for you. A-R-T-I-P-H-I-L-E.com. That's A-R-T-I-P-H-I-L-E.com. To get a discount on the tool that Mara mentioned in the show, Artwork Archive, visit clarkhealingsfund.org slash artwork dash archive. That's clarkhealingsfund.org slash artwork dash archive. For more information on the Clark Healings Fund, visit clarkhealingsfund.org. To sponsor an artist with your small but impactful gift, visit clarkhealingsfund.org slash impact. And be sure and follow our podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. Thank you for listening, and thank you, Mara. It's been really great having you. Thank you, Daniel. It's been a pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thank you.